With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You are listening to Gangland Wire, hosted by former Kansas City Police Intelligence Unit Detective Gary Jenkins. Welcome, all you wiretappers out there. Back here in the studio, Gangland Wire. Got my friend Camulus Cam Robinson on the Skype. Well, wait a minute, I forget. I use Skype so long that I use Zoom all the time now. And those, those guys, guys, you guys that have donated money, you know that you, we do a Zoom call once a month. So, you know, if you haven't been donating any money, you better start donating some money and I'll put you on a live Zoom call with myself and Cam's usually there. And and a few others. We had a special guest last time. Got a, I know his name as well as so I know my own, Denny Griffin, who wrote the books with, uh, Frank Culotta and kind of a tribute to Frank Culotta. This next, next week or so, I think it's the 25th here. We're going to do one and we're just going to talk about your favorite mob book. And I think I'm after that. I think I'll get a guest. So Cam, welcome. It's good to have you here. As always, I'm glad to be here, Gary. So, Cam, uh, let's go back over some of those other sites that you're involved with now. Yeah, we've got a lot, trying to put together a lot of things. I'm with a couple other guys, and we've got a Facebook site right now on the Chicago outfit of the Underworld Killers, Kings, Killers, and Clowns. We've got a New York site, the Underworld, the Five Families. And we've got sites from those Facebook sites. You can get links to other places. We're working on a series of publications that will be coming out in 2021, Several issues of like magazines for different mob history, starting with Prohibition and working on up to a uh, pretty contemporary. What we're talking about today has got an article in there. We've got a lot of pictures. We've got some calendars coming out for Christmas and we've got a couple other things. So check us out at the Underworld Killers, Kings and Clowns on Facebook. And is there a website connected to that? You know, we're building a website right now. We're doing everything as backward as possible. Okay. So okay, we, are, are. we are right, right, just like uh, like most people. So we're building a website. We've got YouTube video, and we've got several, uh, again, the underworld of Kings, Killers, and Clowns, and we've got several good interviews. We've done Frank Calabrese. Gary, you helped. You guided me a lot through all this. We did Calabrese Jr. We've got some more interviews with his family coming up. We did the Seifert brothers about their father, Denny Seifert. And we're really trying to find interesting angles to things that maybe haven't been done before. So, like I said, Gary's been holding my hand through a lot of stuff. So I really appreciate it. <laughs> well, I just 
rising tide floats all boats. I want everybody to be successful in this mob world. So uh, <laughs> I don't believe in that five families and we only take care of one family. <laughs> Kansas City will take care of everybody. Uh, yeah, yeah. Right. If I was in this for the money, I'd be uh, I'd be starving to death. So <laughs> I'll leave it to you younger guys. Maybe you'll get something, get you a street place old one of these days. There's only so many mansions you can buy at this point, right, Gary? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, I got one, man. I'm sitting here in it. <laughs> I, you know, man, I was just thinking the other day. I, I, you know, I was looking at these high rises down the plaza, and they got this nice view out over a beautiful area, and it's not too far from my house, actually. But then I thought, you know, they don't have a big two-car garage that can keep two motorcycles and two cars and a bench and, and shed, and, and well, not a shed, but a uh, big toolbox and uh, all my lawn tools, and they don't have a screened-in front porch that I can look out over West 45th Street here and monitor all my neighbors' comings and goings. <laughs> That's right. That's right. City's fun, but, man, then you look at what you got out there. Yeah, and they don't, they hard don't to get have butterflies and uh, goldfinches and all kinds of other birds flying up and smelling at my flowers and prowling around and hummingbirds on my hummingbird feeder. So I kind of got it made. I live like a kid up here on 45th Street rather than down at the high-rise penthouse overlooking the plaza. And yeah, moving right along. Well, this is an interesting story you've come up with here, Ham. Chris Passiello was actually born Christian Ludwigson. He's a German, but I think you told me that his mother's maiden name was Passiello. Right. right. Yeah. You know, we see that all the time. Germans and Irish and Italians all go to the Catholic Church. And so they meet each other at the church and they intermarry. I've got several friends that are part German and part Irish, and I've ran into more than one Italian guy who was part German or part Irish and part Italian. Be me, so. Be me. <laughs> Be you. That's my mother's family were Italian and Irish. Yeah, we're in the same orphanage. Yeah, there you go. Well, they met through the church in some manner. <laughs> That's right. That Catholic church is like <laughs> it is a thread that runs through this country. Like you can't believe as I look at it. I, I'm English and Presbyterian, raised a Presbyterian. And I just, I've always marveled at the thread that the Catholic Church has and the connections that are made and how people get together. It's all based in and around the church, but that's the way it is. You know, he was raised in the borough park of Brooklyn and, and real close. I think he got down here just north of Bensonhurst, which is right. mob territory there, man. Yeah, a lot of Pacifics in uh, Borough Park, but there's still a lot of Italian. Yeah. But that Bensonhurst, that's Gotti country there. Yeah, that's where all the Italians in Brooklyn were. Everybody came from Bensonhurst. So his father was a drug addict and a car thief and was not, was really kind of removed from the family, which will, that will kind of help you make sense out of our friend Chris as, as he gets older. Eventually he'll take on her maiden name, Pasiello, when they moved into one of the Brooklyn's. Italian neighborhoods is probably safer for him and he could fit in better as an Italian in those neighborhoods. And plus, if he's going to go on and be involved in crime and organized crime, why they better have an Italian last name. You know, he started out all the rest of them. How many of these people have we talked about, Cam? They always start out as a small thief. That's right. Nick Savella, the boss in Kansas City, started out stealing tires. One of the other mob guys, a guy named Tony Gizzo, it was kind of his mentor back when he was young would uh, buy those stolen tires from him. So they, he started out stealing car stereos at age 15, which that was a huge deal at one time. Yeah. He learned all about wiring and cars, and he then started stealing cars. 
he got connected up in his later teen years with something called the New Springville Boys that were kind of a farm team for the mob, primarily the Colombo and Bonanno family. There's always these groups of organized young Italian kids that grew up in the same neighborhood and all went to the Catholic Church. We're all altar boys together probably at one time. And they get to know each other and they form these little gangs. I mean, that's in every city. We had it in Kansas City. We even had one more recent times that did a drug investigation. We titled it, I think the FBI actually came up with the title. We titled it The Young Italians because they were all the young guys who were in their 20s, early 20s up to 30. And they realized the money that was being made in cocaine. Now, they weren't very good at it because they all got popped. We turned a gal that they trusted early on in this thing, and she was integral in the deal and turned her, and she pretty much brought them all down. They weren't very successful in the drug business, which is why their grandpas, their dads and their grandpas said, don't get in the drug business, because, you know, then they got like 15 and 20 years at age 25. That's a long time to go at, at age 25. Yeah, like the 42s were here yeah. in Chicago. I mean, the times were different, so they were a bit more, right. well, they were, they were bigger and violent, but it was the same kind of thing, and the same thing was going on in, uh, in New York also. Yeah, they had the Gophers uh, for the yeah. Irish. The uh, was Oni Madden, or, or I think it was Oni Madden, or one of those other Irish guys. He was a member of the Gophers, and they were fighting other gangs, and they were going down. They were really pretty organized and stealing together. Five points is what Capone was in New York. Five points uh, yeah. was a big one in New York. Paciello was close with the uh, Bath Avenue crew that was on the documentary series Inside the American Mob. If you saw that, it was on uh, Discovery Channel first and then Netflix. The local crime families, Colombo and Bonanno, use these guys for all kinds of little jobs, arson, robbery, intimidation. They'd kick up to them just for that be able to hang around. There were even their drug dealing. They didn't let anybody know they were taking the drug money, but you know they took it. And they made those connections. And like you said, just like the 42 gang, that was like the farm team for the outfit in Chicago. And a little story about the 42 gang. Supposedly, they got that name not because of a street. You would think it would be because of a street. They all lived on 42nd Street or something. <laughs> because somebody said, you know, we had Alibaba and the 40 Thieves back then. And they had two more than that. They had 42 thieves they felt like were in their gang, so they called themselves the 42 gang. They were two better than Alibaba and the 40 thieves. <laughs> right. <laughs> that was because back in those days, that was the 1930s, 1940s, maybe 1930s, they had a classical education, so they taught stories like Alibaba and the 40 Thieves and the Arabian Nights, and everybody had to take Latin in high school and that kind of thing and study more the classics rather than today. They sent them off to trade school, more than likely. Yeah, and those would have been the stories they, they would have liked, you know. Yeah, really. Kids. So, Cam, he gets a connection, one of his first connections to one of the mob wives. Tell me about that. This Lee Davanzano. Lee Davanzano. He was sort of the leader of the new Springfield boys. He was real fast riser in the area. He seemed to be really smart about how he did things. And you'll see that later on as, as Chris goes down one path. And Lee does not go to that extreme. But Lee would end up marrying Odrita Devanzano. She was a character, Drita. And Lee is in prison through most of the show. In this story, this is the first of two mob wives connections, I'll say that. But they become close. Devanzano was. He was a loan shark and really had a lot of money on the street. He said close to a hundred grand. I think I find that kind of hard to believe, but he had a hell of a lot of money. And he was in Bensonhurst around 
Brooklyn, that was real big Colombo and Bonanno territory. And so that's who they went back and forth with, the Bonanos and the Colombos especially. And the Bonanos were really in a period of strength at this time, the late 80s, during the late 80s and the early 90s, because the commission trial just happened and basically wiped out everyone except Joe Messino, who had kept his guys clean through all that because they had been kicked out of the commission anyway. So the Bonanos are really rising to power, so that's who these young guys turn to. So Lee sells guns, and Chris gets in with Lee. And one of the things that they do early on is they sell guns in this Colombo world starting up. You've got when Alioy Persico was getting out of prison in around 91, and Vic Arena was the acting boss of the Columbos because Carmine Persico was in prison. Vic Arena didn't want to step aside for the nephew of the boss, and so they had an internal war. Greg Scarpa was on one side, he was on Persico's side, and was, he had a lot of deaths and all. And these kids... And the New Springfield boys with uh, Lee and Chris was in the middle of it. That's how they made a lot of connections higher up, is they were selling guns to the Persicos on both sides, but they got really close with the Alley Boys side. And that would really define Chris's career going forward, was just from selling guns to the winning side of the, the Colombo War. Interesting. I see that he also worked as a investigator for a mob lawyer back there in New York, a guy named Dennis Peterson. I don't know that, but he would later claim that Peterson was his father figure, which I think, he didn't have a father. What's the deal with that? Well, you know, I think with his father being an addict, Peterson kind of looked out for him and would bail him out because these kids would get in trouble a lot. They were doing a lot, a lot of bad stuff. So Peterson would keep an eye on him. I think as an investigator, he would say, go check on this address or whatever. And from Everything that I could read, it said that this guy Peterson really did look out for him and felt bad for the kid because he didn't have any family. That didn't really have a father. And so he did just give him a legitimate job working in his law firm. Peterson was a mob lawyer. So I think that he would sort of go check on these guys or what do you know about these guys? He would use his street connections to sort of find out whatever information could help his clients. But Peterson was also a bit of a loan shark. And as Paciello got older, he used him to make collections. He did send him out and say, well, you know, I'll give you some of this if you... And so he had this kid, even though he looked out for him, the kid was still going around making collections. He was probably muscling guys as he had to and using his gang to break windows. And so there was that legitimate relationship between them, but he was also... He used kid for what he was worth. I see they got into... Stealing drugs from other people, which is pretty common for these young right. mob guys. I know we had a little crew here. They actually, they ended up just had a little flurry of activity about this. They found out they had a guy who was offering to buy a kilo of cocaine. They said, okay. And he was actually a mob and I'm a mob. He was actually an FBI informant. He was working off a case and he had a big one. You know, he's got to set up part of this young Italians to buy a kilo of cocaine. And one of the young Italians walked in who happened to be actually Irish member of that little crew. And he walked in the hotel room and the bureau had it wired up video and audio. And a guy just pulled out a gun, just started shooting at the informant and the FBI agent. He has to like go out of his hotel room, which is right next door and run into that one and got in there and shot and killed the bad guy. Joe Riley was his name, shot and killed him. And, and actually informant didn't die. Joe really. Right, it wasn't a very good shot or something. He just popped him a couple of times and, and then tried to follow up with a headshot real quick of the agent got in there quicker. I don't know which. So that's pretty common. These young guys and guy from Detroit, Gunner talked about that. And it's pretty common for these young kind of half mob connected guys 
Frank Coulotta talked about that out in Las Vegas and Ernie DeVino, the hole in the wall gang, they'd get a tip on a drug dealer and drug dealers are fair game for these mob guys. And they got the balls. They'll go out and do them and take their money and their drugs because they got a way to get rid of the drugs. So that's pretty common. I see he got into doing that. Here's another connection with the mob wives. <laughs> that's right. kind of crazy here. Tell me about that one. You're talking to a friend of Vanzano's is across the street. He's buying drugs for himself, and he sees these guys loading these bales out of a rental unit into a flat panel truck, and they're bales of marijuana. So he watches them load up. He follows them, and what they do is they park the vehicle in a location, and they get up, and they leave the trucks, and they pick it up. So he goes to a payphone. He calls Lee. He said, hey, you got to get down here, and if you got a guy who can steal cars, bring him on. So he calls up Chris and they go down and they steal this truck and they pull it into a warehouse that they know or somewhere and they realize they've got a ton of stolen marijuana, a ton, a ton of marijuana. So they sell that and Anthony Graziano, who is a capo in the Bonanno family, creator of Mob Wives is Jennifer Graziano and her sister Renee Graziano is the big star of the show. So this is their father. He would go on to become the consigliere of the family eventually. He calls him up and says, my Daughters haven't made this TV show yet. I need some cash from you kids on the street. He says, I want a piece of your eye. I want 50 grand. So he gives it to him. He said, now, how much did you make on that? I know you made a lot of money. 150000 And you, know, you don't shine on the mob guys. They, the streets talk. And he says, get right with this kid. So he talks to him. He said, you know, you're coming along. You're doing really well. And you want to be around for these momentous events in your future. You want to be here for things like weddings. Do your best to avoid the funerals, kid. Act right. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, those mob messages that they send. Yeah, really. So, but there, there you go. You've got Graziano and Drita DiVenzano are both covered in this story. There's your <laughs> mob wives connection. <laughs> I tell you what, that's an amazing phenomenon. But I watched, I watched one of those like, oh, my God. I know people like this. How do they live like that? I don't really want to watch them. <laughs> I tried the Chicago one and it just. Yeah, that didn't, that didn't work out at all. I read about that. They had, I think it had Frank Sweet, some connection to him, you know, if daughter. daughter and you know, she'd be messed up. I mean, if you're raised by Frank Sweet, Frank the German, whew, that dangerous and, oh, for a father, man. <laughs> Generally unbalanced. <laughs> yeah, really. I thought, I thought my upbringing was bad. I can't even imagine what that would be like. <laughs> we just had to work like hell. <laughs> Anyhow, <laughs> moving right along, I see that the new Springfield boys and our friend Chris went on into doing some armed robberies, uh, bank robberies even, man. These guys were, they were going all out. You remember, I, did that Andrew DiDonato when he was a young guy, and they made a hell of a score with a armored car robbery, I think. He said they hit it for $400,000. So, oh, my God. You know, if you're just did one on the trench coat bandits out of Kansas City, they were peripherally connected to the mob. They didn't let the mob know how much money they were making. And they hit one bank out west for $4 million. They just got lucky. But if you do your planning right, you can make some really good money robbing banks. But you got to plan and you got to have a crew and the whole nine yards, just like you see in the movies and the point break and the other caper shows, the Italian job. You got to do it right or you're going to go down pretty quick and you're not going to make any money. You hit these banks like my friend, the booty hat bandit from St. Louis. He didn't know what he was doing. You know, he was getting 3000 
$4,000 a bank. He robbed like 14 banks just trying to keep his mortgage paid till he got caught. <laughs> and he was a first timer. He got 25 years. They stuck it to him. Oh man, they did. And there's no, you know, crime with a, a weapon in the federal system. He's about 14th year and he's going to have to do about 23 or 24. He paid the price. They start robbing banks and they were like 2021 20, doing this. Were they pretty sophisticated, reasonably sophisticated? Yeah, like they use crash cars, they case location for weeks. They learn what, you know, who worked in the bank and when, and they check on how the, the armored cars were delivered. So they would go in there. I mean, they did seven or eight banks in over the four states. I guess you've got Connecticut, New York, New Jersey, and maybe Rhode Island, but they did a bunch of banks and they would, they walked into one with a, a guy had fake bombs strapped to his chest and, but they wouldn't walk into a bank and just randomly say, Hey, I'm robbing the bank. Like you said, because yeah. then you're just going to, you, you might get a couple grand because banks don't necessarily keep a lot of cash in you, but you show up at the right time. You see when the armored car is coming and, and whatnot and you get the right bank. We're advocating bank robbery, but I mean, these guys did all right. I mean, you're talking they had several $300,000 jobs. They had a couple for over a million and they really, in between that, they were involved in small robberies all over Brooklyn and New York. They were robbing everything from pet shops to video stores. And in between, they were in all the bars brawling and fighting with everybody and that Jersey Shore sh sort of fist pumping stuff that you see. Yeah. If you saw that inside the American mob, like you were saying, I mean, those guys that was the Bath Avenue boys, and they talked about going crazy and just hog wild around the city, just young wannabe mobsters. With, uh, and they knew that they had to kill in order to become mobsters. So they all kind of had a real bloodlust. And Chris here was, was right in the thick of it. He was dozens of little robberies and bank jobs were big. Set, I think seven of those and the tapes were from 300,000 to a million. Yeah, I see. He was always on the lookout. I noticed a section here on uh, robbing a porn shop owner, more like a, a guy that owned a bunch of porn shops. And you know, those porn shops, they deal in cash back then, especially. I don't know if they do now, but a lot of people use cash in those porn stores. So they're going to have a lot of cash. That's like this marijuana business. I don't know if they've ever changed the federal law there for a while. Even the legitimate marijuana people had to add problem with their cash because the banking systems is illegal on a federal level and they're under federal law. I don't know if they figured out some way for them to take that cash or not, or if all these medical marijuana and then the other states where it's totally legal for recreational purposes, some there's a lot of cash flowing around out there. So this guy, the porn business would be a good opportunity, but you know, a lot of them are connected to the mob, especially in New York. Yeah. What was the deal with that? It looks like he's a Jewish guy. I couldn't find this is a pretty well-known incident, this Semi Shemtov, and I couldn't find if he was connected or not. There's a couple of weird things about this robbery, but so Pasiello goes to a guy named Jimmy Calendra, who was in the Bath Avenue Boys. He's a major, he's one of the main guys that they're interviewing on that Inside the American Mob. So he goes to Calendra and says, hey, I've got this job. He knows this guy, Shemtov, the porn store, and he's always using cash. He sees him around, and I guess they run in similar circles, and so Shemtov's always got cash. He figures he's got a safe. Passiello would later say that Anthony Spiro, a capo in the Bananos, turned him on to Robin Shemtov. But Calendra sort of was really tight with Spiro, never mentioned Spiro in that robbery. So anyway, they get together with a guy named Tommy Reynolds. And the plan is for Passiello to drive to the guy's house. Tommy Reynolds and Calendra, who are both big guys with the Bath Avenue boys, will go in there and they'll rob this guy and do what they got to do to get him to show him they're safe. Problem is, Reynolds is getting big into the crack cocaine game. 
from that time, you know how big crack was. I mean, going through there, I mean, you were right in the thick of it. And so this guy was not only selling crack, he was sampling quite a bit of his wares. And so they show up, they jump out of the car, they run up, they knock on the door, knock on the door. This woman opens the door, 40, she's 45 years old, opens the door. They're sort of taken aback. And Reynolds goes to put the gun up to threaten her and pulls the trigger and shoots her right in the face, just kills her. And they don't know what the hell. Her daughter is there on the steps looking, just watching this all take place. She's nine years old. They just turn and run. They don't know what the hell. And Tommy was just, I guess he had been smoking crack all day. That was it. It turns out there was no safe. There was no cash in his house. Wherever Shemtov was keeping money, it wasn't home. So it was really not that there's any ever any reason to, to do that, but they really poorly searched job. It sounds like if the mob were going to put something together, they would know that there was or was not cash in somebody's home. So that was in 93, I think, in December of 93. So Paciello starts looking to get out of town. He's got to find somewhere out of New York because he knows he's got this egg over his head. I mean, this was a major... If you look at the timeline of what Paciello did, this was when he sort of, well, I think I got to skip town. So he starts looking for opportunities. A friend of his, a guy named Michael Caruso, was in London during all this. Day. He was a street guy, too, and he was spending a lot of time in London. He was a DJ. And there's a, a burgeoning music, musical scene over there, the rave scene. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Electronic dance music. There's a lot of drugs. That's where you see like ecstasy and ketamine and a lot of those club drugs that are really selling. I think it's safer on the street level because, you know, you're just selling to little kids who aren't going to try and roll you for that. So Caruso thinks if he comes to America and sets up a European style dance club with that thumping music and everything, that it would really fit in in a place like New York and that, that it's really the prime time for America that kind of thing, sort of a British invasion, but brought over by a street guy from Brooklyn. So Asiello agrees with him. Interesting. I kind of remember that scene kind of started back east. We didn't really get that much of it here in Kansas City. I mean, it took a while to make it here to Kansas City. There was a lot of drugs going through those raves, and that's when ecstasy hit big time, and there was they got on that. I think it, it got so big that I noticed the Mexicans were making it down south of the border and bringing it back up along with the cocaine and heroin. So it, it had to be big. That was about the time I got out of the business and was probably a neighborhood policeman <laughs> there at the end of my career. Actually, I was a aide almost to the major of Central Patrol. and We did a lot of community policing. I was kind of over it by then. I let the younger people do that by then, so I didn't really get too involved with the Edger Phil. That whole thing, I remember them having these the big deals. They'd run these raves down in the West Bottoms in a uh, in an old warehouse district, and they're trying to figure out where they were. Vice was always running around trying to figure out where this underground rave was. It was supposed to be so big, and they didn't find it. Then they'd get all kinds of calls from parents the next week about their kids got all zunked out on drugs down at some rave in the West Bottoms. You better do something about it. <laughs> 
So I see there he got involved with uh, Mickey Rourke, which, boy, I tell you, that Mickey Rourke, he's a piece of work. I can see him getting involved with the mob. Yeah. So Pasiello decides he wants to get out of town, and he Caruso's got the connections. And also, he says, well, clubs are starting to start to form in New York on their own. Why don't we do this in Florida? You know the people, and I've got some connections down in Florida, because Florida is where the mobsters go to retire. So they go down to Miami. At the time, Miami was not like it is now. In the early 90s, this was before Miami became a big club. There were a lot of drugs and everything and from the cocaine wars. But Miami, as we think of it today, I guess, hadn't really evolved yet. This was the first dance club in Miami. And so Lee goes down there. I'm sorry, not Lee. Chris. You guys are running together. Chris yeah, goes down yeah, there with, with Caruso, and they talk to Mickey Rourke. They like the location of his club. And it turns out that this club is owned by the Gambinos. So they say, well, all the money did because he still got all his cash from his bank robbers. And I was smart for a young guy. Didn't get into drugs too heavy that I could find, but he put all his bank robbery money into this club. He said he called it risk because it was risky going in with the Gambinos, but you know yeah. he had to pay his lease up in cash, and if he couldn't pay the rest of it by a certain time, he had to just give it to them. And Lee DiVenzano came in for forty grand also with them, so they really thought they had something here, and it turns out they did. The club was really successful. You see pictures of him in the early 90s with Jennifer Lopez, Sofia Vergara, and Johnny Versace used to go to the club before he was killed. This was the spot in Miami risk, but you would see mobsters there too. It was just a, I mean, this guy, he wanted everybody in his club because that's how you make money. He wanted the biggest loan sharks, the biggest mobsters. He wanted the drag queens and everybody too. I mean, everybody who walked through the door was more money. It really created that Studio 54 environment that I guess he was going for. So he has the biggest club in Miami. He's making a ton of money. This kid's 25. He's got a he builds a second club down there. His house is a million and a half right on the water. He's got a big boat. He's got all kinds of cars. He's hanging out with famous people down in Florida. He's really, really had a hell of a life down there. But of course, he's getting into fights and doing all this stuff down there. But what he's also doing, rather than leaning back from the life, is he's leaning into it. So he's leaning into that role of mobster club owner. And he's hanging out with mob guys down in Florida and he's throwing big parties for them. And more and more mob guys are coming around him and he's hanging around them. And Lita Manzano comes down and he says, this place is, this guy's hanging around with a bunch of sharks. He gets his initial investment back and he tells his crew, so he said, you better watch out for this guy. He's going to kill you for your part in the money. So even at this time, the people around Pasiello didn't really trust him. Probably didn't trust each other that much, but there was a sort of a sense of brotherhood among these kids. But Pasiello was really up in the ante who he wanted to go around with. He was getting in deep with as many gangsters as he could. So he opens his second club, and in early 96, he gets a call from the Columbos, Wild Bill Catolo. Catolo says, you, know, you come from our neighborhood. We've got a history with you. You're on the record with us, period. And because one of the locations is owned by the Gambinos, they didn't really appreciate that. So there was a sit-down, and Ali Boy Persico sort of speaks up for him. And when the acknowledged boss is on your side, then you kind of get what you want. And so he went with the Columbos. He was more or less a Colombo, and he became very close friends with Ali Boy Persico, who was several years older than he was, but they started hanging out. He's really, really getting in tight with these guys. He used to sell them guns, and now he's running clubs for them. Yeah, I see him gave him a $5,000 Cartier watch. Yeah. That's, uh, that's how you get in with a mob guy. You gave him a $5,000 watch. <laughs> <laughs> right. 
Of course, the problem is then they realize how much money you got, then they just want more. <laughs> like the crocodile, you start feeding them thinking they won't eat you. What you're doing, you keep feeding them, keep feeding them, but they're just going to eat you last. <laughs> yeah, that's, that is exactly right. <laughs> so even when he's down there, he's riding around with Persico. They're just driving down the strip down there, and somebody cuts him off in traffic. He follows him down and rams the guy's car. He gets into another argument with somebody and beat, hits a man with a baseball bat. So he's not growing out of the streets or anything. He's still who he is. You see, in 1999, no, uh, May of 1999, while Bill Cotolo disappears, that was a big moment. You see Bill Cotolo's son on a lot of shows talking. Yeah, I got it. I was contacted by him about wanting to do something. He and that Nicholas Christopher, I think, is an author that's written some mob books. I emailed him back and said, yeah, hey, well, let's give it a shot. And then I never heard back from him. Yeah. Whenever I've seen him, he does a really good job speaking about things. Yeah. I, I need to push him a little bit. Yeah, that would be really good. You yeah. do a really well with him. The dad disappeared, huh? Was it one of those Lupara Blanca, a white shotgun? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I don't remember the, the ins and outs, but I know that the Columbos were a lot like the Bananos and that they were really killing each other a lot back then. This was 99. That have been after. Persico's really were not involved in drugs as much as the other families. I, I don't think they were involved at all, but there was always a lot of internal strife in the Persico's. They did that kind of like a lot of families where you know, the Gaudis wanted to keep it in the Gaudis and so the Gaudi uncles and all and you know, the yeah. patriarcha, he tried to give it to his son and that led to a lot of problems and Persico tried to give it to his son and that that always leads to a bad situation. You try to keep the leadership. So, Asiello is arrested in November of 1999 on the Shemtov case. So, Cotolo disappears in May of 99. And then the police are able to get Shemtov. They, they, I think they get Tommy Reynolds and Jimmy Calendra. I guess this is really bothering Jimmy Calendra, is, is how Calendra tells it years later. So, they arrest him in this shooting of this woman, Judas Shemtov. So, we're going back to the Porn guy, Shemtov, and the murder of his wife. So that's starting to murder well out, as my seventh grade teacher used to say. That murder's starting to come out for some reason. Somebody must have started talking. That's right. And I couldn't remember what it was. I don't know if Kalendra, I know Kalendra ended up getting caught for something and Reynolds got caught for something. I can't remember the deal. Yeah. But so while he's in prison, he gets a $15 million bail. And that's more than John Gotti's was. $15 million on this Chris Pacello. And so Sophia Bergera puts up half of it. Another starlet down there puts up half. They put up their homes to get wow. this guy out of prison. He gets real strict house arrest at his mother's place in Staten Island. So he has to go back up to Staten Island because that's where the trial is going to be. So he's up there. While he's in, though, this is where he makes a real agreement with law enforcement. I guess through the years, he would sort of drop hints like a lot of them do, Gary. Trying to get over on the competition, they'll speak to law enforcement a little bit here and there. But it, this is where he really, he really, he's looking at murder. He's looking at a lot of stuff. He's the guy. So he agrees to speak with law enforcement on the record here in, in this arrest. So he comes to court. And while he's in court for, for this arrest is when he speaks to law enforcement. But the, the entire, everything is sealed. And he was released. So why nobody picked up on why that was odd. But... Several people went away in this murder. Paciello was released. I guess he was just the driver. Maybe they figured that's why he got away with it. But So he's back on the street. And while he's in Staten Island, 
he hears this other guy, this Jerry Green Eyes Clemenza, bad mouthing Cotolo. And a lot of people in the first case were looking for who, who had gotten rid of Cotolo. So Paciello reports it to Persico, the boss. Persico says, okay, find him and I'll send a hitman. So here we have Paciello out on bond after he's on house arrest, driving around Staten Island. He's following this Clemenza, trying to find where he's going to be so he and a Colombo hitman can take out, can take care of this guy. And they lose him in traffic. And when Vasiello finally does make the agreement, he reveals that, yeah, I was trying to find this guy, that Colombo's had me trying to kill him. So he immediately begins informing on, at that level, and basically everything. I mean, has got a lot to talk about. So shortly thereafter, Lolly Boy Persico, the boss of the family, is arrested on a loan sharking trial, and they're going to require Paciello to testify in open court, which he did not like, but you got to do what you got to do. That was the agreement. So he, he testifies against the boss of the Columbos in open court, this guy who was good friends with him. And while he was there, he implemented this Dennis Peterson, this lawyer who was also sort of a father figure to him. And a lot of sources that I read said there wasn't really much need to do that. He just... I think he threw that out as a bonus. Maybe he had bad feelings towards the guy. But this Peterson, this mob lawyer, climbs the top of the building and jumps off of him. He kills himself. And I guess he had some other things going on, too. So this guy who showed Paciello a little bit of kindness, he Paciello turns him in. Paciello is basically the quintessential mob guy. He turns on most everyone. But he did have a lot lead to a lot of arrests. He led to guys who were arrested who eventually led to Joe Messino, uh, the boss of the Bananos, he, Paciello's work sort of set the dominoes going for a lot of big mob arrests during the early 2000s. So he really did bring a lot of guys down. When he was released, he changed his name back to Christian Ludwigson, moves out to Los Angeles, and sets up a pizzeria, but it, it goes bust. He's floating around. He gets involved in a bunch of fist fights in the middle of the street. And every club he goes into, he gets into a brawl. First, is a big cocaine smuggler. Second, he gets in a fight with all the, you know, like, like you said, the Jersey Shore type stuff, fighting with every bouncer in another place. And in 2012, he just says the hell with it. And he moves back to Florida. He's going back to Chris Paciello again. And he's trying to open new clubs. And the last news I found of him was in... February of this year, they were looking for beachfront property in Miami, which is all taken up by hotels and businesses now. So there's a small island where you can go off, and they're setting up a, a more sedate club where you can just sort of hang out at the pool and drink during the day. And he wants a more relaxed club now, but because of COVID, the attendance is not going to be good. When I was in February, he's a club owner, going by his name, Chris Paciello, again, down in Florida. So I guess... That shows you the state of the mob. <laughs> really? Is this club called Rockwell? Is this yes. club called Night Spot? Rock, was it Night Spot Rockwell or just Rockwell? It's a Rock, Rockwell, yeah. And it's a place Watts. called Watson Island. It's Rockwell on Watson Island. So he's making the news and stuff again, too. And if you Google him, you'll find some recent stuff. Or I seem like I remember that from another story I did. If his name, because he was the big draw during the day. So they wanted to see if he came back, could he do it again? Yeah. Could he recapture that former glory? And apparently everybody who lives in Miami, all the Miami celebrities now, who, you know, their names you'd recognize, but they're just people who live in Miami. They all turned out for his new club opening in 2012. So he, wow. he did yeah. not feel afraid of the Columbos back in 2012 that he opened his, he opened his own club. 
As you said, the state of the mob today, those guys are all over the place that uh, just living openly and not really taking many precautions, if any. I don't know. I, you know, I had I finally got that Michael D. Leonardo to come on the podcast. He was kind of open to me. I didn't put it out, but he was not trying to hide the approximate area where he was. I didn't put it out. I could have because he said it, you know, while I was recording. I just cut that out. But God, and, you know, Frank Calabrese, he's running the mob tour up there in Chicago. I don't think he's doing it this summer, but he sure did last summer. And Frank Galata, of course, he was all over the place. <laughs> he was like, come and get me, you know. <laughs> You see, Joe Pistone, who, I mean, I can get in touch with him. He's telling about his agent. And Phil Leonetti sort of keeps his head down. He does. Leonetti does. He really does. I talked to uh, Scott Bernstein. Bernstein. And he said, well, I can put you in touch with him. But he said a few things about him. And I decided, first, first of all, he was going to want money. And I'm not going to pay money for interviews. I either do it for free or we'll promote their books or movies or whatever. But You don't pay other people? <laughs> no, <laughs> just you. <laughs> You're the only one that gets paid. <laughs> after I pay myself, after I make a profit, <laughs> split it all with you. <laughs> oh, we haven't exactly made a profit. Well, you know, folks, you listen to me. Make a, help me make a profit. Send me some more donations on that donate button. Send them in the name of Cam. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I'll give him every dime I get that you say, well, this is in the name of Cam. They're going to want money. They're going to want their money back. <laughs> want their money back. <laughs> <laughs> well, Cam, I appreciate it. That was a heck of a story. Doing all the research and coming up with that. Yeah, it was a little bit newer, a little bit different sort of a guy. I, I actually had a, I think it was Frank Luna who has been a supporter of the podcast, and he mentioned this, Chris Paciello, that, that we ought to look into him and do a story on him. So, so Frank, there you are. There's a story on Chris Paciello. I try to, to do things for people if they suggest them to me. Oh, Cam, be sure and take a look at our YouTube page on the Australian shows that we did. We've got some lady that's kind of trying to straighten us out. I think maybe we got a couple of things wrong. So take a look at that. You'll find the comments. Interesting. I can't figure out if she's trying to straighten us out or she's like just adding to the knowledge that we had up there. I couldn't remember enough, I guess, from what we did. I didn't have the notes in front of me. So posted on the Australian boards. I said, you know, we did the best we could. Excuse our funny accents. Oh, oh, that's probably why all of a sudden I got a little action on the YouTube page. So we got several comments. I got a bunch of comments over on those Australian things over the last couple of weeks, it seemed like. So you have to take a look at them. All right, Cam, I think that's all I got. uh, Yeah, it was a good one. I appreciate it. All right. You got anything else? No, I think, like I said, we're coming out with some publications in 2021, the uh, Underworld Killers, Kings, and Clowns for Chicago site. We've got tons of new pictures every day. The New York site is still building Killers, Kings, and Clowns, the five families. And we've got a couple of interviews coming up. We've, uh, we've got an interesting one that you and I spoke about earlier, uh, trying to get the Frank Calabrese's wife. So we'll, we'll see what we see. Interesting. I just did a show. It may come out for this about, I just did this myself. John T. Ambrose, he was a U.S. Marshal that during the family secrets trial, uh-huh. he was ratting out where Calabrese was yeah. and what they had in their files. It was pretty interesting. Yeah, that's, that guy was... That, that was incredible. Even, even in the, the 2000s, you see Chicago with the guy. That guy was Marcello. 
Really, he uh, another kind of interesting little. It's a small world. Is my friend Steve St. John was in Leavenworth with the Marquette Ten. Reason if the FBI cracked that and figured out who Ambrose was was because of another wiretap they had, and they were getting information about the babysitter and something about Calabrese and the guys, the babysitter, and and then they talked about the Marquette Ten. And so they put that together, the Marquette 10, and they named a couple of them. And I think somebody said something in that wiretap about it being some connection to the Marquette 10. So when they started looking into it, that was 10 policemen in Chicago who were shaking down bars, the Rush Street bars and on the north side there. And they all got a bunch of time. And Steve was, was in Leavenworth with a bunch of them up there. I may have to do a story on them. I, I'm not sure. I'd have to go research that and see just how interesting it was. But he's got some prison stories about policemen in prison. But, so they put that together. And when they said the kids, talking about the kid being the guy who was talking to him, his father died in prison. And so when they look at all the Mark at 10, there's a guy whose name's Ambrose who died in prison. And there's one of the U.S. Marshals named Ambrose who's guarding Nick Calabrese. So it's a pretty fascinating story. It's kind of a shorty, but it's a fun story. Constantly on the prowl, huh? Yeah, always looking for stories, folks. So you got any suggestions? You got any resources? Know anybody that we ought to interview? I'm trying to get Sammy the Bull. I'm getting closer. <laughs> got a guy that's talking to him. <laughs> but I think he still wants money. He's into it for the money and into it for the big time with his own podcast. They haven't got it started yet, but I think he's got some kind of backers. Though, so it'll be high production values and have the, you know, the whole nine yards have a professional voice you know, be the interviewer and, and then at, probably ask Sammy the Bull questions. I can't tell exactly what it's going to do, exactly how they're going to, the format they're going to make. They haven't come up with the exact format, but it's out there and it's ready to go. But I got a guy working on him. <laughs> He's telling him, you know, you need to be on this guy in Kansas City's podcast, you know, kind of promote your own. That's right. <laughs> so, folks, I'll let you know when we get Sammy the Bull. If you do, you can thank Steve St. John for that. All right, Cam, good talking to you. Good talking to you, Gary. All right, bye. I thank you for listening and supporting Gangland Wire Crime Stories. If you want some more connection to the show, find my private Facebook group called Gangland Wire Crime Stories. I only admit podcast listeners. Have a public page, Twitter feed, and Instagram all under Gangland Wire. Or you can email me at ganglandwire at gmail.com. As a lot of you know, I have a website, www.ganglandwire.com. On the shop page, you'll find a donate button to support the podcast. Now, I realize that some of you may be out of work because of this dang virus, and I don't want you to even think about donating. But for the rest of you guys, for $25 or more, I have different rewards depending on how much you give me. Plus, another way to support my work is to go to Amazon and rent my documentaries, Gangland Wire and Brothers Against Brothers, The Savella Spiro War, or encourage your friends to do that. I have a book about the Las Vegas casino skimming investigation titled Leaving Vegas, How FBI Wiretaps Ended Mob Domination of Las Vegas Casinos. Now, that's a mouthful. I don't know what I was thinking when I titled that book. If you get the Kindle version, you'll get links to hear the actual wiretaps. Finally, don't forget you can buy me a cup of coffee or a shot in a beer with your Venmo app at Gangland Wire. You know, recently I've started hosting some Zoom calls that are restricted to fans who have supported the podcast in some manner. Besides cash donations, some of you are helping by becoming editors on my Facebook pages and keeping them filled with fresh content. And if anybody wants to write short blog pieces, no more than 100 or 150 words, 
and attach relevant photos. You can send those to me and I'll put those up on the Facebook. I have folks already like Ken C. from Arizona and Basil T. from Dallas helping with that. And they have both been doing a great job. I really appreciate what you guys have done. Every Facebook page can use more and more accurate content. People out there are starved for good, accurate content. Let me know if you're interested. Time for my public service announcement. Right now, Gangland Wire is supporting PTSD treatment and recovery for veterans. If you're a vet and you think you may need help with PTSD, call 1-800-273-8255 and press 1. Or you can text at 838-255. The VA also has a website with lots of resources at www.ptsd.va.gov. Well, as we used to say, I'm 1042. Music provided by our good friend and super fan from Portland, Oregon, Casey McBride. Thanks, Casey.